Well, in Bible college, they taught us in our homiletics classes, which is our preaching classes, if you want to drive away a crowd, talk about money. But they said, if you want to draw a crowd through a sermon series, talk about sex or the end times. And it got me thinking of like, man, what would a message about sex in the end times do to a church uh, if that were the case? Now, today we're not talking about the end times, but we are going to be talking about sex. God's design for it and our formation in it. Last week, we kind of gave a little precursor that today's message might be a little bit PG-13. However, we're not going to shy away from it. In fact, if you have junior hires with you in the room, maybe high schoolers, this is maybe a great opportunity to hear it from uh, a biblical perspective of how we should be uh, uh, approaching sexuality uh, from God's mind. Now, statistically speaking, there was an article that said that one in 10 people at most first learned about sexuality in what they would deem as a formative approach, meaning that it was helpful, it was appropriate, it was uh, the right time, right place. And so just out of curiosity, if you feel comfortable, just show of hands, how many of you would say that you first learn about sex or sexuality in a formative manner, right? How many? So very few of us. And so that statistic, I think 10% is, is very high. That means the rest of us, you learned about such an important thing on the back of a school bus, on the playground one afternoon, maybe playing a game with some friends, maybe what you know about sexuality comes from shows, screens, or movies. And see, whether we like it or not, realize they're not Christians, we have to often decide that our views about sex, sexuality, sexual identity comes in a battle. The word of God versus the ways, the culture of the world around us. And if I were to venture to guess that many of us, as we've grown and matured in life, our views on sexuality have probably changed or shifted, maybe slightly, maybe significantly. It's usually perhaps as a result of a personal experience or, or sometimes it's a result of a relationship with someone in our life. And I want to start off by saying that is that the church at large has not handled this conversation well at times. Throughout the past, throughout history, talking about sexuality, it's been, it's been maligned at times, has it not? We say things that aren't helpful, like, well, it's not Adam and Eve, it's, it's not Adam and Steve, it's Adam and Eve. Maybe that's a phrase you've heard before. And, and what those types of comments end up doing is they end up making it more difficult for God's design, his description, his formative uh, view of sexuality to be handled and talked about well. Sometimes it comes across as insensitive, and unfortunately, it's been used as a shaming tool to further d- demean people on some of their past choices or things that have been done to them. And so I want to start off today, uh, this morning, saying two things. Is Number one, this morning isn't going to be very robust. It's going to be of, a, of an umbrella sort of conversation, but our text has led us here to talk about it, so I'm not going to avoid it. And just be like, okay, welcome back to 1 Corinthians. We're going to skip over chapter 6, go to chapter 7, because I don't want to, I don't want to get into this type of thing. I want to try to be as considerate as I can. We won't be able to cover every nook and cranny related to this topic, but I would just want to recognize and hope that you will offer us as a church the opportunity to have more conversation and follow-up if you desire. Second of all, and this is kind of the main point I want to build towards, so I want to give it to you up front, and I'm going to hopefully build towards it throughout this message, that above all else, above all else, I believe that the good news of Jesus is for everyone. No exceptions, no asterisks, 
No depending on an orientation or a viewpoint or a past. That Jesus is good news from everyone, no exceptions. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to begin turning with me to 1 Corinthians. We're, we're heading back into our series called True North. A couple weeks ago, we, we kind of took a break as we kind of emerged our Urbana family here uh, with us in Champaign. And we finished a section, 1 Corinthians, talking about a man who had chosen to do something, uh, to, to sue fellow brothers and sisters in the church, and Paul was encouraging him to say, look, we don't do this. As Christians, as believers, as the kingdom of God, we do things differently. We think about things differently than the world around us. And our series through 1 Corinthians, we've been saying it's about developing a Christ-centered worldview and how that fleshes out in our life. So we've been sharing this, uh, this uh, Venn diagram that we all have a context, a culture around us that tries to fo- uh, form, mold, shape, what we think, how we act. We have specific beliefs that we're called to and those should inform our actions. All of those collectively come together to form your worldview, what you think, how you act, how you treat and view other people. And since disciples, we are called to a a different belief, a different culture, a different series of actions. And and Paul has finished building this point, chapters essentially one through five, that, that what you believe about the gospel What you believe about God, those core fundamental doctrines should form how you act and how you behave. And so because of the gospel and in the kingdom, we are new creations, which means we live in a new and different way than the world around us. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 9 this morning. If at any point during today's service you feel a little uncomfortable, if at any point in today's service you need to excuse yourself due to the content being presented, we invite you to do so uh, as well. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 9 this morning, Paul says this. He says, or do you not know that the wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, not the slanderers, not the swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul begins by reminding the church of what the good news is, that there is no good news without there first being bad news. And he says, through the power of Jesus, who you once were, how you once identified, how you once lived, you are now free because of what Jesus has done to be who God has called you to be. But he's making a very clear distinction here. Paul is saying your salvation in the name of Jesus is not a ticket to sin, rather it is freedom from it. And so Paul is essentially posing a question I want to pose to you this morning, is that is your life defined by your sin or is your life defined by your salvation? Is Jesus who says, you're no longer defined by who you were, the person who sues, the sexually immoral, the porn addict, the adulterer, the fornicator, the, the orientation, the divorcee, the swindler, the victim, the liar. In Jesus, in Jesus alone, he says, that's no longer who you are. My image, my beauty, my purity now lives in you if you confess that you are a sinner and you want to receive new life in me. And so as we continue, Paul is doing next is he's going to kind of address the baby Christians he's writing to in in Corinth. They're holding on to their own way of life. 
They're holding on to the cultural norms and practices around them, the, the expression specifically of sexuality at large in ancient Corinth. And I realized that as Paul writes and as I preach this morning, that there are kind of two groups of people in our room today. There are those of you who belong to the family of God already and those who, who have not. And so to those of you who, who are maybe just exploring faith, you're just exploring Christianity, you're just here just to see what it's all about, let me say to you, take today as kind of like a, a, a way to audit a course. You get to hear the information, you get to see what it's about, but the responsibility to, to take the test, if you will, that is not on you because you haven't decided to be in. But to those of you who belong to the family of God, who would raise your hands and say, I am a follower of Jesus, I've made the decision to be a Christian, a follower of Christ, today is for, for us. But let us also remember Specifically, what Paul said in chapter 5, verse 12, he said, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Leave that to God, but we must judge ourselves. We're going to continue in chapter 6, verses 12 through 20 this morning. So Paul continues here saying this. He's sharing a quote to start from ancient corn to the time around them. I have the right to do anything, you say. But, you do not, but, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food is for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said that the two shall become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him and in spirit. So flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Paul addresses this common saying issue that the Corinthian uh, Christians were using, saying, hey, I'm kind of allowed to do anything. What is permissible by law, I get to do. And on top of that, we have the grace of God that covers whatever I want. He's essentially maybe responding to the question, Paul, where's the line? What's allowed? What's permissible? Essentially, what can I do and still be saved? And Paul says, there's a problem here. This view of grace isn't good. This view of the kingdom of God isn't right. And so the problem is that they have essentially what I would call or label as they have overlearned grace. They have overlearned it from the standpoint they are taking something that Jesus intended as a free gift and they are using it as a ticket to further live in a life that he has freed them from. I heard it once said that, that love is the combination of truth and grace. If all we give is truth, we won't be heard, but all grace has never changed anyone. Thus, the kingdom of God, I like this, this analogy, is roads of grace supported by columns of truth. That's because what our faith in Jesus says is, is you don't have to be perfect. In fact, you don't have to even change before you are welcomed into the family of God. 
That is the grace. But the truth is also that the Spirit of God wants to do its work in everyone who belongs in the kingdom. And so Paul begins by making the point, by saying, who's kind of mastered you? Whose orders are you listening to? What are you following above all else? Because at some point or another, I've been here before, and my guess is that you have been too, is that we get mastered by someone or something other than the Messiah. Is that if we were to reflect on our lives, if we were to take time journaling and write it down, we would all probably see that we have been mastered by someone or something at some point in our life, maybe currently, maybe in the past, that isn't the Messiah Jesus himself. And so Paul is addressing these these baby Christians, saying the question isn't what is permissible. The question is, who is your master? Who are you following? Who is Lord over your life? For some of us, we will follow Jesus in every area except for our money. We will follow Jesus in every area of our life, but we won't pursue humility because we deserve or we desire power. Others of us, we follow Jesus, but anger is something we want to hold on to because it gives us vindication. And throughout much of history, our sexuality is the same. Jesus, I will claim you as Lord, I will claim you as Messiah, but in the end, I get to call the shots about it. There was this progressive and and modernistic expression in the Christianity in Corinth that they had overlearned grace to the point in saying all things are permissible. You know, because grace. I can do whatever I want. I can sleep with whoever I want. I can treat whoever, however I like, because Jesus' grace will cover it no matter what. And Paul's saying, eh, that's, that's not quite right. Will Jesus forgive each and every one of us because of our past decisions or past choices, the things that we have done, absolutely. But he says, grace is given to transform you, that you are no longer your own. There is a new way of living you are called to. Because in those moments when you're asking those questions, well, what can I do and still get to heaven? You're no longer mastered by Jesus. This is the Corinthian culture, the Corinthian Christians, they've been mastered by the culture around them. So Paul is writing clearly saying, don't be Corinthian in your thinking. Be Christ-like. Don't be mastered by your flesh. Be mastered by the Messiah. Your sinful desires, your sexuality, your culture, you must submit even those things that you desperately don't want to over to Jesus. Because when we find ourselves mastered by something or someone other than Jesus, eventually it has the opportunity It has the troubling, rippling effect that changes some of our core doctrines or beliefs that lead us to live appropriately in the kingdom of God. Think about the the concept of universalism. We don't like the idea that there's a a God who has wrath, that he will will, will judge and not justify people because of the, but we like a God of love. So we created this belief that say, well, hell isn't really real. God will just save everyone because that fits my mind and my heart better. There was a man in history, his name was Marcion, this thing called Marcionism that has crept its way even into our churches today that says that scripture didn't really adapt to modern life. Therefore, I will adjust it myself. I will cut out certain pieces, I'll ignore other parts, and I will suit it to me and my culture instead of fitting myself to what scripture requires of me. We go as far to say, well, well, the Bible has some pretty harsh views or has some very, pretty specific views on, on hierarchy and authority, but that can only be oppressive. Therefore, God didn't know what he was doing. But then when it comes to the, the topics of marriage and sexuality, it just becomes very whatever, does it not? It becomes very fluid at times. 
And so the, the critique that Paul is, is offering, it's a simple critique, but it is not an easy one. He says, who or what are you mastered by? The culture in Corinth is very similar to our culture today. Be mastered by nothing. Be mastered by no one. Be mastered by freedom and autonomy. I don't need God. It's my money. It's my rules, my sexuality. Be who you are. Nobody gets to tell me anything. And Paul says, Christian, I beg you to remember you are not your own. And the hardest thing about Scripture, the hardest thing about following Jesus is that anyone who is pursuing autonomy, the so-called freedom that culture offers in any area of life, it's the last thing we want. It's the last thing we want to submit to someone or something telling us to live by different rules. And so Paul does well to remind them. He goes, remember, there is no fine print in the kingdom of God. You are now mastered by Jesus. I don't know if you have kids, but when you get ready to have kids, nobody gives you a fine print of how your life's about to change, right? There's no handbook. There's no pamphlet. They kind of tell you about how the baby's going to come and that type of stuff, but nobody ever tells you about how life's about to change. And we get sold this bill of goods about having kids. It's amazing. It's just, it just brings life and blessing and, and your life is nothing but rainbows and butterflies and unicorns and PBs and J's and grilled cheese sandwiches. And we're like, yeah, that sounds great. And it is, trust me, it is. I got two of my own. However, nobody ever tells you that kids ruin everything about life at the same time too, <laughs> right? Nobody ever tells you that your plans that you had for your future, poof, gone out the window. Your bank account that you worked hard to develop that rainy day fund instantly disappears. That emotional stability you thought you had goes out the window in an instant. That's why people who have kids love vacations without their kids, right? We're going to take a vacation with the kids, but we need some us time. Just getting the kids out of the house for like 48 hours is like the greatest thing ever to any single parent. Nobody tells you that, that fine print. The Corinthian church had a bunch of what I would call um, sexual atheists. Is that people who claim to be fully committed to Christ except for their sex life. And here's what I mean. And remember, for some of you, this is just an audit this morning. Is that as a disciple of Jesus, your responsibility with everything in your life, including your sexuality, means you become more considerate of someone else's way, namely God's way, and the needs and the values of others. So that's why Paul responds to the Corinthian church. He says, stop it with that dumb quote. Get out of here with that. I can do whatever I want. I read Paul just being sarcastic here. You've misunderstood. And you're using it as a tool, as a bargaining chip to continue to live in a way that you know is harmful, not just to you, but to others in your life. Stop thinking that you've overlearned grace. Stop considering that you think you've outsmarted God. It doesn't matter if it's lawful or that you live under grace. It doesn't mean you can do whatever you like in the kingdom of God. In fact, there is a different way. There is a better way. And from this point forward, Paul then begins to address the sexuality piece. You see, our sexuality is very personal to us. Some of you this morning are probably a little bit uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> because it's very personal. It defines very much of who we are. It's very much a part of our story. 
our past, the decisions. And some of us, maybe we have a very healthy view of our sexuality, and others of us, we might be struggling. And Paul goes on to say, so are you going to be mastered by it? Are you going to have mastery over it? You're going to be mastered by your desires, or are you going to have master over them? Your view of sexuality, are you going to be mastered by it, or are you going to be master, master over it because of Jesus in you? Throughout the New Testament, there's this Greek word. It's the word pornea. You can go ahead and snicker if you want. You said porn. It's the phrase that oftentimes gets translated as sexual immorality. It's where we get the word pornography. And what it means, it's the breaking of God's sexual design information. And so whenever that phrase, uh, pornea, sexual immorality, comes up in Scripture, it's kind of like an all-encompassing umbrella term for anything that goes against God's design for sexuality. Because what sexual immorality has a tendency to do is it takes somebody's sexuality or the act of sex, removes it from its proper context, and it turns it into a commodity for somebody else's pleasure or enjoyment instead. Essentially, it's anything that goes against Genesis chapter 2. One man, one woman, in and after the covenant of marriage. So whether that's pornography, infidelity, homosexuality, premarital sex, hookup culture, and on down the line. It's all being lumped together with that word pornea as a breaking of God's design and formation of sex. And you see, throughout all of history, since the beginning of time, it's been an issue. And what sin typically is, it means to miss the mark. Something that was intended for good that it gets kind of altered or changed. And Satan has done a masterful job taking sexuality God's way and tweaking it to giving it a different design, a different function, a different formation in our life. All throughout the scripture, we see this battle, and the battle is this, is that if God designed it, then Satan seeks to destroy, distort, or deceive it. That if God designed it to be good and helpful and unifying, spiritual. What Satan tries to do is he doesn't necessarily get you to look the other way. He gets you to change it. He wants to maybe destroy the context. He maybe wants to distort how it's received or given out. He wants to deceive with it. You see, it's kind of like a, like a good fishing bait. I'm not, a, I'm not a really common fisherman. I fish maybe once a year. But what I do know about fishing, one of the keys is, is you have to have a good bait, and the key for a good bait is it's something that looks the same, acts the same, appears to be the same, but there's one monumental difference when you toss it into the water. Is that as you reel it back in, there's a hook. And the hook wants to draw you in, and what the fish doesn't know, it looks the same, it's acting the same, it's got to be the same. And you are pulled out of the water and oftentimes led to your death. See, Satan is not good at it. He's not even capable of creating anything amazing on his own. But he is a master at the con and at the counterfeit. And that's precisely what Satan has done with sexuality all throughout human history. God designed it. Sex is for, for consummation, to becoming one. Sex is for procreation being fruitful and multiply. And yes, sex is for recreation. In that order, 
but in the context of marriage. The Hebrew word for, for sexual relations is the Hebrew word dod. It means a mingling of souls. It, it's expressing that it's way more than just bodily fluids being exchanged or a physical act that people happen to do. And we need to remember that, that God made it, and he made it good. And he, yes, he made it feel good. It's not like one day humans just kind of figured it out behind God's back, right? God wasn't walking through the Garden of Eden with an angel, just chilling and talking, being like, yeah, da 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 yeah. Oh, you're not going to believe what's going to happen. Like 500 years from now, let me tell you, it's going to be trippy. But, but can you believe what Adam and Eve did, they, the name for some of these animals? Hippopotamus? I mean, that's crazy. What were they thinking? Where are they, by the way? Have you seen them? They peek behind a tree. Whoa, whoa, what are you guys doing here? I, I, I didn't, whoa, whoa. Do you guys know something that I don't know? God made it. God designed it. He very well knows how it works in our lives. Sex is great. Sex is good because he made it that way. But the important part is that the context matters. It's not that there's something bad or gross or boring. That one magical night, it becomes amazing. Rather, it's always valuable and good. That's why the right place and the right person is so important. And that's why Satan doesn't try to distort the act, per se. He tries to distort, deceive, distract the context in which it's done. I want you to think about, if, if you're in the room, the first time you saw pornography. How did it make you feel? First time I saw it, I was overcome with two very polar opposite emotions. Excitement and euphoria on one hand. Whoa. Immediately followed behind with shame and hiddenness. Because I knew what was being seen and viewed was not the proper context. And Satan tries to deceive us by saying, well, sex, it's just sex, right? It's just some fluids being released. Everyone's doing it, literally. It's about compatibility above all else. And I just want to say, if that's you, if that's your view of sexuality, if your view of sex is that it's just sex, it's just a physical act, do me a favor. Find someone who's been sexually assaulted and ask them if that rings true. Find somebody who's been taken advantage, where their sexuality was taken from them. It was distorted because of somebody else. And say, but it's just sex, right? What's the big deal? You see, even that little comment right there, and a lot of us just got very uncomfortable. We know it's true. Because there is something more important and deeper. The reason that somebody wouldn't just say, yeah, no big deal, it's just sex, is because something was taken from them. Because God designed it to be much, much more than something for recreation. Sometimes we might have the questions, well, I have specific sexual urges. My kids, my nephew, I have family members, friends. And you tell me that God created me. So does that mean that God created me in that way? I want to speak empathetically and pastorally in this moment. 
Well, also concisely and clear as I can. I want to begin by saying I have not walked a mile in your shoes. And I can't imagine the confusion you might have at times, but the answer to that question is no. He didn't. It's a distraction of what he made in you and what he made for you. God created each of us to have unique feelings, to have unique desires, but not every feeling we have is necessarily good or from God. For example, many of us, we're experiencing the pains of jealousy. Do we not? Envy, pride. We don't know where they come from. They just happen. But this is a result of the fall in which we read about in Genesis chapter 3. The truth is that we are all born with proclivities of things that draw us or distorted away from God's design. My point is this is that sex is not just physical. It's significantly more. It's highly spiritual. It's deeply connected to us as beings. And what Satan wants to do, more than anything else, is he wants to distort it, counterfeit it, and cause shame and confusion along the way. But I find it so reassuring that when you read about Jesus and how he approached sexuality in the New Testament, Luke chapter 4, 14, John chapter 8. He addresses it. He calls it out, but he never once scolds, shames, or scoffs at someone caught in sexual immorality. He treats them with love, sensitivity, understanding, grace, mercy. But we need to also remember that conviction is not the same as condemnation. You see, the, the, the problem with the sexual revolution that we are kind of living on the tail end, the freedom and the autonomy that it promised for anyone who kind of just goes headlong in is this, is that it redefined what was sacred, spiritual, and selfless into something common, carefree, and casual, just as long as it was consensual. We have taken it something that means what God intended it to be and just turned it into another act. In 1999, there was a, a group called the Bloodhound Gang. They have an album called Hooray for Boobies. And they released a song called The Bad Touch. And you might be familiar with kind of the chorus that goes along like this. It says, you and me, baby, ain't nothing but mammals. So let's just do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. It's catchy, I'm not going to lie. I'm sorry for those of you that's going to be stuck in your head for the rest of the day. <laughs> That's what our culture says, it's just sex. It's just something that animals do. We're mammals just like them, so let's just get it on and get it over with. Culture claims that, that sex, God's way, it's constricting. It's not freeing. It's, it's bigoted. It's no fun. It's dated. What's the big deal? We're supposed to be free and autonomous, express ourselves sexually. Really? Staring at a computer screen with your pants around your ankles is freeing? Feeling like you have to put out after a couple dates so that he won't lose interest is autonomous? Sneaking around to not be caught is something that brings life? 
Satan is a master, master deceiver. And what we need to remember is that God's way is not trying to rob you, but it's trying to warn you, but also to reward you. When the design and the formation are as God intended. In preparation for this, this message, I read a, a lot of articles, listened to podcasts, other sermons, books, and there's too much to share. But I want to share a couple with you uh, today. Uh, Louise Perry, she wrote an article, said, I'm 30, and the sexual revolution shackled my generation. And she's getting ready to release this book, and she just talks about how the girls gone wild phenomenon back in the early 2000s really just shed a terrible approach of sexuality for especially young women in today's age. And she found through many conversations and research and study, this is some of the stuff that she found. She said, porn increases loneliness, not connection. Hookup culture doesn't leave people more fulfilled, but less. Cohabitation actually increases your chances for divorce. It doesn't solidify it. Walking out of the strip club, I'd assume, she says, doesn't leave you feeling accomplished, rather ashamed. A monogamous marriage by far is the most stable and reliable foundation on which to build a family. The thing is, none of this advice is groundbreaking. It's all informed by peer-reviewed research, but it shouldn't have to be. She goes on to describe how just even naturally men and women approach sex differently, as she puts it, out in the wild. This isn't somebody who claims to be a follower of Jesus. This isn't a biblical scholar. This is just someone sharing their experiences. The Washington Post wrote an article that the most, we are the most sexually liberated people of all time, yet we find ourselves to be the least sexually satisfied. The Wall Street Journal had, a, had an article entitled Married Young that they found that the lowest divorce rate belonged by a long shot and the most sexually satisfied couples were those who were married in their 20s who had not cohabitated prior. Now that's not to say that, that monogamous people don't have issues. It's not to say that, that, that being married solves all of your sexual problems or if there's trauma, it magically heals it. But it's very clear that even our world in its study and research has found that God's way makes the most sense. Because ultimately, our sexuality, God's way, is a, is a master lordship issue above all else. The Bible is pro-sex. The Bible is not prude, but it is within the boundaries it provides. One man, one woman in the context of marriage where it is, can be a blessing and not a, a, not a pain. And some of you might say, well, you wouldn't test drive a car without driving it first, right? You wouldn't buy a pair of shoes without, without trying them on first. And I just want to go on record saying this, is that a person with a soul, a spirit, hopes, dreams, value, meaning, and purpose is far more valuable than a car or a pair of Nikes. This is the worst excuse for why you should be shacking up beforehand. Does it happen? Yes. Does Jesus love you? Yes. Does grace still cover your life? Yes. But the stage has been set for us all. The non-emotional hookup culture is now the norm. The non-traditional expressions of sexuality, they aren't just celebrated, they're encouraged. 
Modesty is seen as oppressive. Relationships are encouraged to be as physical as possible to see if the connection is there. And that's why breakups between sexually active people are even more hard and painful because the bond is not just physical, it's deeply spiritual. Because God designed it that way. That is his formation of how he wants us to view and live in our sexuality. So I want to bring it full circle. I want to close with the thought that I started up at the front Again, this is very not not exhaustive, trying to cover a lot, trying to reference a lot, but not maybe give as specifics as you would like. But I want to end with this because I want to be really clear this morning is that Jesus is good news for everyone, no exceptions. You need to know that Jesus is good news for you, no exceptions. No matter your sexual past, no matter your sexual history, no matter your sexual currents, no matter your sexual orientation, Jesus is good news for everyone. But in that good news, living in it, the Spirit does want to make its way into our thoughts, our hearts, our minds. But I want to remind you is that your story is not over. That Christianity isn't about God collecting all these good and pure people. Rather, it's about Jesus Christ seeking, saving, finding, and forming lost people who desire him. Because here's what Satan wants to do. He knows you by name and wants to call you by your sin. And Jesus does the exact opposite. He knows your sin, past, present, and future, and will still call you by name and welcome you into his family. Roads of grace supported by columns of truth. We should not be asking the question, where's the line? How far is too far? Love covers a multitude of sins, right? So I can continue to live however I want. Everything is permissible because of grace. Rather, we should be asking the question, is this formative for me? Does this make me more like Jesus? Arguably, Jesus' most clear view of sexuality comes from Matthew chapter 5. You have heard it said that if you commit adultery, that you have sinned. But I tell you that if you have looked at a woman lustfully, you have already committed adultery in your heart. Jesus takes the modern view of sexuality and he raises it up quite a few notches. These are my views, he says. It's about attitude and heart. Way more beyond just an action between two people. And if you're going to follow me, he says, deny yourself, pick up your cross, come after me, not just with the things you want to surrender. Don't be like the crusaders who heard the gospel and wished to be baptized, but they held their swords out of the water because they still wanted to fight and kill in the name of Christ. Don't be like many Americans today who say, I will follow Jesus, but as you immerse me under that water, I'm going to hold up my wallet so that it doesn't have to get wet or surrendered. At the same time, too, following Jesus means surrendering our sexuality to him as well, too. Jesus loves all. He reigns over all. He forgives all. But he must be Lord and King of all in order for that to be the case. C.S. Lewis said that the greatest distortion of sin is that sin is love turned in on itself. Don't believe and buy into Satan's schemes. Because what sex does is it points to the story that we all deeply long for. It's a story about being known, a story about being vulnerable, 
the authenticity of someone else to be genuinely cherished and loved, to have a commitment that lasts for eternity. And that when broken, we feel shame. Sometimes we convince ourselves we're a mistake. We talk around it, we avoid it, we make jokes about it, anything we can to chase it down instead of submitting it to Jesus. And so it comes down to me a singular question. And maybe this is, this is a little too simplistic, but it comes down to, do you believe the first verse in the Bible or not? That in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis chapter 1. John chapter 1. Did God create on purpose, for a purpose, with purpose? Did he design it or not? Do you believe that we are all image bearers in the name of Jesus? With meaning, value, purpose, a soul, and a spirit. Not just highly evolved animals who discern what to do, whatever, whenever, with whomever. Just cause. If you're here this morning, you might be having the question, how do I respond to my friends, my family, my kids, my peers, my neighbors, my coworkers who might have very different views about sexuality than me? First off, don't be surprised. Second of all, don't be offended. But thirdly, no, your job is to point them to Jesus, not to convince them otherwise. Offer compassion and sensitivity Remember, roads of grace with columns of truth. Even if they throw it back in your face, even if they label you bigoted or old school, closed-minded, take it off the chin and love them anyways. Sam Alberry, I'll close with this quote. He said this, he said, temptation is different to sin. Jesus tells us to pray we've been delivered from temptation, but to be forgiven from our sin. Temptation itself is not sin. It is striking that the Bible nowhere promises that temptation will be completely removed in this life, simply that God will enable us to stand faithfully under it. How do I respond to a friend, someone in my life who has a different view? Remember that. Temptation is not sin. And that God's job is to enable us to stand faithfully against it. The message of the gospel is clear, is that we all desperately need Jesus more than we think, know, realize, and sadly, often, than we desire. But in the kingdom of God, there is no room to look down on anyone, regardless of their choices in life, even in their sexuality. So Jesus is either good news for everyone or no one, regardless of subject. So let's choose to live differently from the world, for the sake of Jesus, for the glory of the gospel. We're gonna move into a time of communion this morning and and given the nature of of today's message, there's gonna be a couple songs after communion. If you feel like you need some prayer, you can come to the front here and, and, and kneel before God. If you are here this morning and there's questions you might have, we invite you to to reach out to myself. Many of our staff are available. You can stop by Guest Central. You can fill out a note on the Connect Carter app. We would love to talk to you more about what you may be processing going through in your life. We realize it's a big subject. It's a heavy subject. This is merely the tip of the iceberg, if that at all. 
So I pray that if there's anything that I said this morning that causes you concern or questions, please know that that was the context of today. Today was not supposed to cover anything or everything, but merely to say that there is work that needs to be done and what is our role in it. Jesus is for you. He's for everyone. And that's what communion represents. Is Jesus that loved you so much that he was willing to die in your place. That no matter your past, no matter your sexuality, no matter your history, you are invited into the kingdom of God. And that his body was broken for you, represented in the cracker. That his blood was shed for you, represented in the juice. That invites you to a new way of living as Messiah over everything in your life. I'm going to pray as we continue to worship and prepare for communion this morning. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your grace. I thank you for the way in which you move in our hearts, our minds, our lives. I pray for compassion. I pray for sensitivity. I pray for empathetic hearts and ears this morning, Lord, as we process. I know some of the stories in this room, not all of them, and and they cover so many different avenues, decisions, pasts, I pray, Jesus, that that you're just close with them in this moment, that your spirit overwhelms them with what they need to be closer to you, to know your love, to know your grace, to know your purpose for their life. Form us deeply. We desire more of you every day, every moment. We offer this time, we offer this worship for you, and we praise you because you are king of our Lord. King of our lives, Lord of our hearts. It's in that we pray. Amen.